This is the Canola Watch Podcast. My name is Jay Wetter, and our topic today is spraying tips. The recording for this podcast is from a Manitoba Canola Growers webinar held live on May 27th. Presenters are Tom Wolf, a spray application specialist and partner at Agrometrics Research and Training, and Ian Epp, an agronomy specialist with the Canola Council of Canada. I am the moderator. This podcast will start with a presentation from Tom, then a presentation from Ian, then 20 minutes of Q&A as recorded on the webinar, and close with a concluding wrap-up from each presenter. Here's Tom. Well, thank you, Jay. Thanks, everyone, for joining us this morning. So here's point number one. Um, I guess for, for me, uh, it has always been about doing the best possible job. And that often means in spraying that you have the right spray quality. Uh, we are using more diverse modes of action in our operations than ever before. We're doing more tank mixing. Uh, some of this is because of resistance management. And many of these products that we're applying do have very specific needs in terms of spray quality. So we're just going to quickly review what those needs are. And I just want you to do a mental check and make sure you can cover those bases. Okay, so some of what I'm going to say does depend on the mode of action. These modes of action are, you know, they have a certain movement associated with them in the plant. They're either systemic or contact. The low numbers are typically systemic, uh, with the exception of group six. And then the higher numbers are typically contact. Uh, so um, that's one, one bit of a guideline to use. We're also concerned about the kind of target that we have. And uh, grassy herbicide, uh, grassy weeds typically present a more challenging target, particularly for the larger drops. They're more vertical. They're typically difficult to wet. They're often small. Uh, often we're encouraged to apply early for early weed removal. Those are all things to consider. So we basically go down the list and say, okay, what are we targeting with these modes of action? And remember, consider the fact that there's often a tank mix involved that will then purposely try to target both of those. Uh, the third consideration, or for, I guess fourth consideration, fourth column is sort of the uh, the, the site of uptake. Is it a, a foliar uptake or a soil applied uptake? Some of these modes of action have more than one. Some of them predominate in one. It depends on the specific product. So you do have to do your research. And then when we consider all of these things, we then assign a spray quality that we think will work. For the most part, the, the, the more difficult targets, grasses, will always default to a medium to coarse spray quality. If we get any coarser than that, we may have some loss of performance, particularly when conditions are tougher, uh, harder to kill situations. Um, when we have a broadleaf target, it's an easy target, essentially, and we can go coarse, very coarse, and even extremely coarse in some cases without any loss of performance. Very surprising how coarse we actually can go. Of course, it depends on the water volume, and that's another consideration. Uh, but when we when we have basically both both uh, you know group one or uh, grass and broadleaf weeds, uh, you know we will always default to the most limiting factor, and that is going to be the grass. So if you have a tank mix that that it contains a grass killer, uh, you are going to need to be using a medium to coarse spray, not coarser than that. And another little additional help to that is, of course, to make sure you have enough water. Water is a very good way of allowing you to use coarser sprays. So, for example, if it is windy and you do want to go a little coarse to protect yourself because you do have a, a problem tank mix component that might harm your downwind tar off target area, 
uh, by all means, uh, add some water to that tank and, and allow yourself to go a little coarser to protect that area. Uh, of course, the, some of the new to us modes of action, the groups 14 and 15 down here that are often tank mixed uh, earlier in the year uh, for resistance management, uh, for burn off in some cases, uh, you know, will default back to the medium to core spray. So we do have to have more than one nozzle in our arsenal. And we do want to just quickly go through uh, sort of a, a small exercise that we can we can use to help us. What I've done here is I've I've listed uh, a particular uh, low uh, low drift nozzle. It's an air induced nozzle. I'm just going to make an assumption that we are uh, going 10 gallons per acre, and that's sort of the blue outline here. Now that's gallons per acre in the top row. And then the column underneath here is miles per hour. If we're targeting an average travel speed, and there's no judgment here, I'm just going to give you a, a couple of scenarios of say 14 to 15 miles per hour. You would like to be using the 04 nozzle size, and you'd want to run it at a pressure that gives you the coarse to medium spray qualities, for example, for Liberty and uh, important herbicide and canola contact product. That would give you about a 14 or so mile per hour travel speed. But let's say uh, just an assumption that, that it is a, a wetter year. We have had some rain now. It's by no means wet yet. But let's assume that your target travel speed just simply isn't possible. It's a little too soft. Uh, maybe uh, you're having a hard time with, with, with that speed. Um, you would then maybe slow down to 10 to 11 miles per hour. That really means that you should be going to a smaller nozzle in that situation. If you were to push this 04, to a lower pressure, 30 or 40 PSI, you would be venturing into the very coarse spray quality for this particular nozzle. And that will not give you the coverage that you want for this product. So uh, by all means, be prepared to go to a smaller nozzle uh, for those situations. And you know, just the opposite is also true if it isn't a dry and hard surface and you can go faster. Don't push the 04 to, to 80 or 90 PSI to, to achieve those faster travel speeds because your spray will become simply too drift prone. Uh, the extra coverage you might get from that medium spray is not, as, you know, isn't going to be noticeable in the field. You will still want to be coarse to medium. That sort of ballpark uh, covers all the bases. So just be prepared to, and you know, if you encounter a condition you, you weren't anticipating that you do have the right nozzle to compensate for that. So that's a, a very important thing. We, we have lots of material on which nozzle is the right one for these kinds of works on Spurs 101. By all means, uh, look it up. It's got a great search engine. Uh, remember, I guess the last comment I would make is that your speedometer should be your pressure gauge. So keep an eye on the gauge and go at the speed that gives you the, the pressure that gives you the spray quality. Uh, that's, that's really what we're, we're hoping to achieve here. Okay, point number two. Uh, now is the time to plan your winter projects. And uh, I, uh, I know this is, a, this is a hard lesson which is coming out of it, but this is not the time to start making changes to your sprayer. The time has passed, it's time to spray. But this is the time to take note of things that are happening, uh, take time to account for your time. And the best tool really is uh, you know, a notepad, a stopwatch, and really just do take the time. It's a hard thing to do. I know you're, you're busy doing other things, but even if it's just the marker on the glass of the, of the sprayer cab, um, I'm, I'm a notorious timekeeper. I'm always timing myself how long it takes me to get to my office, for example, or to go from A to B that I'm, I'm, I'm planning, to do, planning to do in the future. 
we always underestimate how long it takes to do things because we don't start measuring at the right time. So I've made a little worksheet that, uh, you know, I, I just made it up. It's chronological, uh, but these are the kinds of things that matter. I'm going to assume that it's a good spray day today. Are you fueling up on a good spray day? Uh, you didn't fuel up when you came home last night. Uh, you know, that's 10 or 15 minutes. You'll never get back. Uh, lubing anything like that. Uh, are you loading your tender, uh, your, your pickup truck? Uh, shouldn't you be spraying? Uh, are you unsure about uh, about some of the specifics of the label you're you're covering? Um, you are cutting into the spray time. Um, tender trucks, you know, even things like filling the tender truck. If if you have a tender system and it works but it's empty and, you, and it has to go home, that's an hour gone. Uh, I, I have a customer who uses uh, a large reservoir tank on his yard with a 20 horse a 20 horse five inch pump that does a thousand gallons a minute he fills his entire tender in, in about 10 minutes and so the sprayer doesn't wait so those are the kinds of things we just really want to know i've got a customer who has basically made us an art form out of uh loading the sprayer onto the flatbed uh with every hand movement basically something useful he's loaded and ready to go uh, with his uh, towing his sprayer out there in, in just a few minutes and it's a safe operation. So just sort of uh, take account of those things. Uh, in, at the end, uh, you know, filling sprayer is probably the big one, cleaning the sprayer is a big one, uh, cleaning filters, anything like that, flushing. It's, I'd be curious to see what you, what you come up with. Express that as a proportion of the total time spent and or maybe the total time spraying, which is very important. Okay, we've just got just a few minutes left and I wanna maybe just highlight some of the things I'm seeing. I mean, this is a, a, just a, a classic a tender setup. Uh, nothing too special about it, but it's a nice design. It's clean. We are more, you know, everyone that's, that's doing a fast fill is inducting. Uh, we can do up to 150 liters a minute on a good, well-designed inductor. Um, we do sometimes still use product pumps, uh, but they will possibly slow you down. A hose reel for three inch hoses is essential. These things when wet, when full are, are extremely heavy. And uh, if you drain them on the site, then you, uh, you basically make a mess. Some people purge them with air. Some people will actually have a pump that can reverse uh, and, and, and draw them empty. Uh, anything to help you with that uh, pays huge dividends. And of course, local, local businesses. This is a, the fiber tender system, the fiber dash uh, made in Crystal City. Uh, in Southern Manitoba. It's an excellent system, very well designed. It's got some very cool innovations that no one else has. So do consider that one. Um, little changes that you might consider making, you know, we've talked about this for the future. Uh, the recirculating boom uh, saves product and saves time from priming. You can prime without spraying. How much time are you spending priming? Are you sure your boom is full of product? Uh, re continuous cleaning. Um, how much time are you spending cleaning? Are you sure the tank's clean? Uh, you know, those, those are difficult questions to answer, but the people that have put these continuous rinse systems in with the second pump that just pumps water from the clean water tank to the, the washdown nozzles allows you to spray at the same time are saving tons of time. You basically are diluting and cleaning out the, the residual volume in your tank uh, in just five minutes. And then from that point on, you can, you can now move and, and go ahead and do the other stuff, cleaning booms, filters, anything else that might require cleaning. A little innovation, the Accu volume right here. This is a little load cell on the 4830 sump here that's just plumbed into a T. Beautiful system that tells you the nearest gallon what's left in your tank. Uh, it's a time saver. 
and it has a little readout to the nearest gallon. So, um, you know, I consider these little innovations, these little changes very important. And the last tip that I want to give you is to, in fact, even if you're not spraying dicamba on an Extendamax uh, or an Extend variety, uh, consider getting an ultra coarse nozzle nonetheless, because it gets you out of a bind. I, I call it my get out of jail free nozzle. You know, if you are somewhere far from home and you're committed to doing that field, but the winds are becoming questionable, but there's weather coming in and you don't know when you're going to get back to that field, but you don't feel good about continuing, put one of these nozzles on and continue. They will reduce drift by, by a huge amount. They're virtually as close to drift free as we can get. Yes, there is a loss of coverage, absolutely. But perhaps in that last tank, you can make up for that with some more water. The efficacy loss may not be noticeable and it may be small compared to your yield loss if you don't get back to that field in the next several days because things do happen fast. So here's just in, in closing, um, sort of a five or well, almost 10 nozzles actually that you should consider. These are in alphabetical order. The Greenleaf Soft Drop is a nozzle that uh, is made for PWM. Uh, it is made by uh, Greenleaf. It's an agrotop uh, product from Germany. It's uh, extremely coarse to ultra coarse, works at reasonable pressures and will get the job done. Greenleaf also makes dicamba-specific air-induced nozzles, not for pulsing, a wide variety of sizes available. And these are uh, very coarse to ultra-coarse. They all even made one for their twin nozzles. So they have three products that will get you out of a bind. They're all labeled as dicamba-specific products. Hypro has recently released a new nozzle called the Ultra Low Drift Max. It is air-induced. It is okay for pulse with modulation. It comes in all the popular sizes and pressures. Extremely coarse to ultra coarse. In fact, it's it's the coarsest nozzle I've ever seen. Um, it has a super wide fan angle, um, so it works well even at lower pressures. Should that ever be necessary, um, a little frightening, but it will do the coverage. The TTI is kind of the granddaddy of the dicamba nozzles. Well proven, well used. It's air induced. TJET has okayed this nozzle for PWM as well. Um, comes in all the sizes you could ever need. They also have a dual fan version of this. Um, not sure if that's absolutely necessary. Slightly smaller size selection, also okay for PWM, even though it's air induced. And a new one, they made a nozzle, they designed a nozzle for PWM. It's again, a twin nozzle. Again, it's a dicamba spray quality, comes in all the sizes you could possibly want. Um, it is a very clever design. Uh, lastly, Wilger, uh, sort of the, I guess, the standard bearer of pulse width modulation nozzles, the first to the party and uh, the largest selection of PWM compatible nozzles, largely a, a case specific product because case puts the Wilger nozzle bodies on in the factory, but easy to adapt to any T-Jet lug system. Um, a huge size selection available in that Wilger line. So these nozzles will get you out of a bind. We'll let you finish the job. And uh, that is, uh, those are my three main tips uh, for last minute considerations prior to hitting the field. Jay, I'm going to turn it back to you. Great. Thanks, Tom. Okay. Ian Epp. Uh, Ian Epp is an agronomy specialist with the Canola Council of Canada, colleague of mine. Ian. 
So uh, kind of similar to jumping off what Tom was talking about, um, I'm going to be talking about um, kind of everything we need to do right now for spraying. I, I we, Weeds and pesticides are a bit of a passion of mine. I could probably spend an hour talking about herbicide resistance, or and I love sitting down with growers and, you know, re-kind of crafting how we're going to do weed management, integrated weed management, different tools, trips, tips, things we can add in. Uh, but now it's not the time. The seed's in the ground and the weeds are growing and we need to make sure we control them. And then what are the things we need to be double checking? What are the things we need to be doing? Uh, this was me learning a new sprayer this year. Uh, I've been spraying for a long time. We had the same sprayer for a lot of years. It was good. It was reliable. I could tell you the ins and outs. I could tell you exactly where, which filter I would check first if I had this problem or that. But we changed sprayers and that was good for many reasons. But learning a new sprayer is just reminded me the challenges of rinsing, checking out how to plumb, is it working right? Are, am I getting the right pressure? Uh, a lot of those things Tom was talking about are a good refresher for me because it's been a bit of a learning curve to just making sure a new sprayer is actually doing what the monitor says and what I actually wanted to do in the field. Uh, so step one, this kind of jumps off what uh, Tom was talking about, but more on the agronomic side, is your sprayer clean? Uh, if this was 20 years ago, we did it. We just were just coming out of our pre-burn. We would have sprayed straight glyphosate on everything. Glyphosate's a pretty easy rinse out and we'd be off to the races. But now hopefully if you've uh, do, been doing some planning in winter, you probably had two or three other modes of action alongside glyphosate to, uh, you know, improve weed control, maybe some residual control, herbicide resistance. You had a group 14, maybe you had a group two, depending on what crop. And now it, double checking that your sprayer is clean coming into canola. So this, uh, the pictures you see here are the exact case we want to avoid. This is group two damage on some Liberty Link canola. So the grower had been spraying a number of tank mix partners in their pre-burn, had no issues, no residual, things looked good. Went to spray their first tank of Liberty. And uh, Liberty on top of being a widespread uh, canola herbicide is very good at scrubbing out certain other herbicides from your tank. So if you've done a medium job to cleaning your sprayer, but haven't quite got everything cleaned out, you might have issues. So this is frontline that was used ahead of some cereals and then Liberty popped it out of the tank and now we have pretty clear cases. And this was spread over five or 600 acres, um, just as boom ends and it, as the, the, it was slowly taken out of the sprayer and kind of pooled in a few different areas. So Again, I hate these situations. They're tough to go to. There's not a lot we can do at this point, but double checking that, especially before spraying Liberty, or as you make that big transition from your pre-burn into your in-crop and especially Liberty, we do a really good job recognizing that Liberty will find the things that we, if we don't find them first. And again, Sprayers 101 is a really good, uh, or, or the Canola Council has some websites if you want more details on what that looks like. I'm not going to go into the details, but you know, before you hit the sprayer next time, make sure, is the sprayer clean? If you have if you don't do a lot of good record keeping, I would recommend that a list of, you know, fields, what products I use. And sometimes I put a little note, I put a little star, I have a, I have a book that sits in our sprayer and it's got a little note and I, I star the ones that, oh yeah, I had a group two here that I'm concerned. I want to make sure I do an extra good rinse or I'm going to need to buy some ammonia or some, uh, some, some something extra to make sure my sprayer is clean. So looking back through your records, have you sprayed anything? Um, again, this is one from my farm from last year. Uh, I talk about sprayers a lot and normally I try to do exactly what I talk about, but I sprayed a product. It was an all-in-one product uh, and I, I've had gumming like I've never had before. So again, learning the where to check your sprayer, what are all the hangups? This was not a fun day. This was about 80 acres into spraying a product that was new to me uh, and everything was on label. It was all good, except as you can see here, I have never had so much gumming in my sprayer in my life. So again, these things happen, but 
have this happened in the past? Is your sprayer clean? Where is this going to hang up? Having a bad gumming like this really uh, showed me a few extra areas to maybe pay closer attention to in my sprayer. Uh, another thing, I just thought I should mention this as we're looking at, we've been dry across the prairies. We were a bit dry last fall, dry this spring. I've had a number of calls on herbicide residue. So, you know, Odyssey showing up in this year's canola, which maybe accidents happened or just other products that normally we get away with, but we've been so dry. Are we going to have herbicide carryover? And are we going to have, you know, like we said, if we didn't clean out our sprayer quite good, are we going to get some group two symptoms showing up from residue? Uh, I just want to point out that with all the cold frosts, uh, that cold can show purpling. The, the picture you see here is just cold on canola. That'll be temporary. That should disappear fairly quickly. But as you're out scouting for frost damage, maybe looking, is this herbicide damage? Um, what I recommend there, if you see purpling like this, it, it's generally more general to the plant. It's not so much on the growing point as a group two injury, but I would put a little pin flag or something at that plant. And if you come back 48 hours later and the purpling's all gone, it was probably just cold weather. Canola really doesn't like going from plus 20 down to even plus one or two. Not a frost damage issue, but you're going to get purpling like this. Uh, you can also get some sulfur damage or sulfur deficiency symptoms. Usually you're not going to see that quite this early, but just not all purpling is group two damage. Though in some cases, uh, unfortunately, that is what happens. Um, so the kind of the step of thing, you've cleaned your sprayer. Now is a really critical time to be scouting, not just for weeds, flea beetles, frost damage, stand establishment in general. This is a really critical time for canola. But while you're out there, we're looking at weeds in the fields. Make sure you get a good record of what's in your field. Is the weed pressure heavy, light, not so bad? Uh, and what, uh, again, what species are out there? Um, species can change a lot year to year. I know for those of you that have been farming for a while, you're probably experts on what, you know, the top couple weeds are in individual fields. Um, but are they bigger this year? Are they smaller? This is going to tie into make sure we're doing a really good job with when we spray. I was in canola. We're fortunate that in, for a lot of our canola, we have the ability to spray two applications. But I always think it's let's do the first one right. Let's get in there early. Let's do it right. And if we need a second one, we can. So let's make sure we're not going back in because we didn't get a great spray application. We have some escapes. Um, so yeah, what weeds are in your field? Um, what are the driver weeds? I like to know what are the top three weeds in your fields. What's the biggest weeds in my field? What do I got to do to rate? Do I got to add a tank mix partner? And are, are there any special weeds in there? You know, kochia that I think might be glyphosate resistant. It's already going to be group two resistant. Um, other herbicide resistant weeds. What do I have to do? Is there a tank? So again, we're not talking big picture weed management. We're talking, you're probably going to be spraying later this week. The chemical, maybe I've already chosen the canola. So what's the rate that I need to do? Can I add a tank mix partner? Uh, and uh, what else do I need to be scouting for? Is there a patch when I'm scouting that looks kind of weird? There's a patch of a lot of wild oats. I like throwing in pin flags again in the field, come back two weeks after an application, go, did the plants actually die? Did, was my, was the rate, the product I used actually correct? And is there a herbicide resistance or something I need to be putting in my records for next year so I can make better decisions in winter? Yeah, so staging these plants is really important and, and staging the canola. Again, we have a wide window of application in canola, but spray early. So, you know, key weeds like this, we got a nice flush of cereals coming in on the canola there. The canola looks good, but the cereals are, equally big and then special weeds like cleavers that are hard to control we have tank mix partners you can add it's just a matter of do we actually need that uh tank mix partner this is just a good reminder different canola different products we want to be staying on label and you know a lot of these products we have a really wide window of application you can apply them really late which is great but for best yield results if you want to maximize your yield we're applying early and then if we need, we get another flush, the rains, whatever, we can apply a second time. So depending if it's TrueFlex canola or Liberty Link canola, 
different application timing and windows, just make sure we're on label with those applications and the earlier, the better. This, this is my spray early. And if you have to spray twice, so, some years it absolutely makes sense with a late flush of weeds. Um, you know, this year it's been fairly dry. I noticed some of my own fields, the pre-burn worked well. We seeded in, it was powder on top. There has been no weeds. Uh, and my canola is not really up yet, but my cereals are pushing three leaf and they're actually really clean. But now we've had this rain, I expect a big flush. If I had more weeds, I would probably already been spraying some of my cereals to get in there early. Again, early weed control is for yield. You're waiting for those extra, that extra couple of weeds, extra flush. It seems like a good idea, but you're not protecting yield. Those, those weeds are taking up nutrients, they're taking up moisture, so spray early. And because we're fortunate in canola, we can always spray that second application if we need to. And I guess kind of the third point that I'd like to talk about a little bit is uh, the market access side. So instead of, in addition to doing agronomy work, I'm spending quite a bit of time working on market access issues for canola. So, and that's kind of a two-way street of making sure growers, as you as growers have access to the products we need to do the weed control or to do pesticide applications. That's really key. But then making sure that the residues, the intervals, all of that stuff that's coming out, the products we produce meet expectations, right? Because we, we export 90% of our canola. That's really important to us. We gotta make sure we're on label. So if you have questions about that, um, spray to swath.ca or keep it clean, sorry, keep it clean.ca, lots of information. The, the key thing here is as you're going and you're applying your products is making sure you're on the label, right? What's the, what's the rates? Um, I quite often make myself a cheat sheet of, you know, here's the, here's the in product, the in crop products I'm gonna spray. Here is the latest, earliest and latest I can spray it. And here is the lowest and the highest rate. Just kind of those easy things. I can figure out the mixing and I can adjust those rates in that depending on the weeds and my scouting. But just a quick reminder of, I can bump it up, but here's how far I can go. Uh, we sometimes we have unfortunate circumstances where we have to apply late, but we're making sure we're on label is really, really important. And that's the other benefit of spraying early is that it, should you get delayed, that second application happens a little later. If you're trying to get on early and you get delayed, we're still gonna be applying at a reasonable time. And I think that is it for me. Back to you, Jay. This is when we break into the Q&A part of the webinar. Going back to Tom's discussion about efficiency, I kick off with a question about municipal wells and differences in pump speed. Tom, have you heard anything about differences between wells and their, their pump speeds? Yeah, I mean, uh, very, absolutely. I mean, wells are some, some wells are notoriously slow. And, uh, and so what that's one of the reasons that people are building, uh, you know, basically a, a tank system on their farm where they can fill up uh, and then have a have a, enough for the day or the even the week. Uh, another important part of that is actually the, the temperature of the water. Uh, so we, you know, it comes out of the ground very cold and that is a mm -hmm. problem for mixing some of our products. And so it creates some issues with uh, um, uh, also with pulse modulation valves. Uh, so there's a few products that are oily and it just gets a little more viscous and the valves tend to stick. So temperature is another reason to do that. Uh, you know, tanks that are darker help. But by all means, uh, a reserve tank on the farm with a large electric pump is a, a real time saver. Just got a note here from Jean-Claude, uh, 23 minutes for 1,200 gallons. That's, that's the pump speed at, at the municipal pump for him. Uh, so Ian, I want to I jump to you, but so good tips, Tom, on, the, on uh, getting the water a little warmer if you can, the black tank or the darker tank. Uh, getting that water a little warmer. Ian, that picture you showed of, of that gum up, nice of you to admit that you made a mistake since you're the expert. That's awesome. <laughs> so I'm wondering I, if, 
And actually, funny enough, that actually part part of my issue was my water was too cold. I have a reserve oh, yeah. tank on my yard. It's an old cistern, but it was cold water. And actually, if I had had my tank, my water warmer, apparently I would have had much less issues. But one of those things you just, the first, that's why actually the first tank was fine because it was sitting on a black tank. And then I started pumping my cistern water and that's when I ran into problems. But really, always, okay. something, always something to learn. Yeah. Uh, so that, so seeing those really badly gummed up filters um, made me wonder, uh, and Tom, Ian, you go first and then Tom, but this is about efficiency. Is it worthwhile having a, a full set of extra filters and screens on hand so you don't have to spend any time cleaning, Ian? Yeah, I quite often have a set. I, I like, I, I really don't like running to the city for parts, especially since I do my spraying before and after work. I don't have a lot of business hours to get things. So I quite often have a lot of extra parts kicking around and extra filters are good. They wear out eventually. They need to be replaced. Uh, half, every once in a while you break one pulling it out or having issues. So I, filters are pretty inexpensive. So having a second set around or sometimes even having a, a different set of meshes around if that's causing you grief. Uh, either you're not catching something in my nozzles, my nozzle screens are catching something I'd rather clean one primary than clean a pile of nozzles. So that's, or the other way I'm catching things that I don't want to be catching. Yeah. Having extra filters around is a cheap kind of cheap insurance in my mind. Tom. Yeah, I totally agree. Those are great pointers. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. And indeed, a question I often get is, you know, uh, do we want to go to the, to a, a nozzle individual nozzle body filter? Uh, and, you know, we, we, it is again, a question of, of how clean your, your supply is, whether you have any concerns and, uh, and then, of course, also how large the nozzle is. I mean, typically when it's an O3 size or larger, we typically don't have any plugging issues. So you can really get, a, get away without having one there. Uh, and even smaller nozzles, if your water is clean, uh, they, just, they can just be a reservoir for catching things that would otherwise just go through. And, uh, and then, then you have to manage, you know, 72 of these tiny little guys. And it's a, it's a real time killer quick question on the nozzle bodies is three the best five uh where, where would you go with that there's two ways of dealing with it i mean one way is of, I, th I think we recognize that we basically have we live in an environment where we have three basic water volume regimes you know the five gallon plus or minus for burn off and glyphosate based products the 10 gallon per acre plus or minus for everything in crop and then the 15 gallon plus or minus for late season sprays where the canopy becomes an issue and so you can do that actually with with two nozzles i mean you can do a five gallon nozzle and a 10 gallon nozzle for that but then use your 10 gallon nozzles and and just slow it down a little bit for the late season spray because of the crop canopy maybe being a little bit tangly and not wanting to destroy it and then the 10 gallon tip becomes becomes a, a 15 gallon tip now the other thing we can do is really use speed and pressure to give us the spray quality for a specific situations. Now, remember, I'm talking about non-PWM systems. If we have a conventional system, just pulling back on the lever, uh, one or two miles per hour gives you 10 to 20 PSI pressure change on average. That means without a huge penalty in speed, you can make things a little coarser when you need to or finer when you need to. And those are the two main things. Of course, with PWM, you just dial in the pressure that you need right now and duty cycle, everything takes care of the, of the background. So no speed change is necessary. 
Yeah, I think you can do a lot with two or three nozzles, depending on how picky you are on speed and efficiency. Sometimes having more nozzles are key. I actually had a situation last year where I was, we broke a hay field or I didn't break it. I wanted to, I didn't want to, I wanted to go no-till into it with a disc drill. So no tillage, but I was spraying this thing and it was the roughest field that, you know, hasn't been touched in years and years. Uh, so I actually uh, was spraying 10 gallons out of my five gallon nozzle so I could drive painfully slow as everything was flapping up and down on this unbelievably rough field. So there's little benefits that way. I didn't want to buy a set of nozzles or do something different for one quarter, but yeah, speed is a, just changing your speed is, is huge. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, there's this funny relationship in the, in the, in the pressure and flow world where if you want to, you know, double your flow, let's say you have to quadruple your spray pressure. It's a square root relationship and that always messes people up. So, so a small change in speed results in a relatively large change in pressure. And that's why we say use pressure gauge as your speedometer and just watch it. Make sure you're within the bounds of the nozzle. Make sure you know the spray quality within the rough ranges that you, you've got and just kind of adjust your speed accordingly. And if you don't like the speed that you're driving because of things like Ian just said, uh, you just simply have to get a different nozzle. I mean, that's really the only the only way to ensure the quality job. Nozzles are still a bargain. On a 120-foot boom, we've got 72 nozzle bodies. You can get almost any of the top air induction tips for $10 or sometimes less. So yeah, it's money, but it's um, it's probably worth it. What, one okay. question for you, Tom. I have a quick okay. question for Tom. Pressure is your speedometer. What's your thoughts on having a separate pressure gauge on your boom or like, you know, your monitor on whatever sprayer has a pressure gauge, you know, where is that pressure coming from and how much pressure change do you see between that and maybe having an external gauge on boom section, something or farther down in the piping? Yeah, no, uh, very important. The pressure drop is, is, is fairly significant. So the typical pressure sensor is between the pump and the manifold that distributes it to the section so that whatever section you're spraying, you will have a pressure reading. And so that, that leaves the sectional control valves, the plumbing to the individual sections and the individual nozzle bodies and any valves they may have because PWM valves actually create pressure drop as well. So we have seen uh, 10 and even 15 PSI pressure drops from the gauge to the actual nozzle. Now, measuring that nozzle pressure is not easy because you, you can't really just put another pr pressure sensor in it. There's, the products just don't exist. And you'd have to do it for each section, right? So what we're recommending you do is you basically do it manually. You put a gauge on a quarter inch NPT you know, cap and then just read the pressure in the cab and read the simultaneous pressure. You're spraying through your whole boom on that nozzle that you've just put the gauge on. Take note of that for a few different pressures and flow rates pressure drop will increase the higher flow rate of the boom. And so as long as you know the pressure drop, you can compensate. If you have a 10 PSI pressure drop and you need 50 PSI on the nozzle, spray, spray it 60 and you're good to go. Okay, guys, we've got a few questions coming in now. So that's good. I'll leave mine <laughs> for later. Um, I just uh, wanted to note that Fernando in Brazil says uh, we do have similar problems with cleaning sprayers. So uh, great to hear you from you, Fernando in Brazil. Awesome. All right, John, questions, a uh, question on uh, what are your thoughts on increasing the water rate for spraying contact chemicals like a group 10? Would you agree that spraying more than 10 gallons per acre can be uh, 
can be as effective as higher chem rates. So can you keep the rate, the chem rate the same, increase water volume and get even more efficacy? Yeah, I, I'm not sure, depending on how much you're increasing the rate, that's kind of an odd one, but absolutely on context, usually, you know, you see uh, a group 10 is registered, you know, 10 gallon kind of minimum. We see the minimum values registered quite often on the label. Uh, you can apply it more and actually quite often you do get good results. So not that you have to apply more water volume, but certainly if you have the opportunity on a contact uh, herbicide, uh, water is one of the cheapest things to make that herbicide work better, right? Especially in thick canopy, challenging conditions, maybe it's dusty, we're having problems getting, you know, it, the more herbicide that touches the plant, the better the efficacy. So if you do have that opportunity, you can fill a little faster, or uh, I have a couple of fields where there's smaller little pieces of field, but if I'm spraying a group 10, if I fill the spray rate full of water anyway, I can adjust my rate, uh, you know, the herbicide rate stays the same, but I can get a bit more water on and Really, it's one tank to drive to this field, spray it anyway. Those kind of opportunities do make a big difference. Yeah, I view water volume really as an insurance policy. It sort of sets the stage for things that you might want to do. Having a little bit more water gives you the opportunity to, to do something with droplet size if you have a drift issue. But, but in terms of the size of the hammer, rate still has a role to play here. You know, we're not going to turn a bad situation with uh, efficacy of Liberty into a good situation just by adding some water. Liberty is notoriously sensitive to all kinds of inputs, uh, including, you know, whether a time of spraying, whether it's sunny when you're spraying, what the moisture regime has been in the past few days and in the future. So rate still is a slightly bigger hammer, but uh, we're already at fairly high rates with Liberty. So it, it does become, uh, you know, a productivity question and a label question. Okay, we'll move on. We're we, so we've got two questions about water. So Michael asks about using hard water, uh, particularly with glyphosate. Uh, looking for a comment on that, Ian, and then Tom, and then we'll move on to the next water question. Yeah, uh, hard water and glyphosate's a classic problem. Uh, something to be tested, and especially if you're shallow well or a dugout. We've been really dry. Water quality changes quite a bit, especially if you're taking from maybe a dugout or some sort of water system that's changed quite a bit. So uh, checking your water system more than just one, you know, maybe once a year or if conditions are changing, you know, we might see quite a bit of difference in the water quality. Um, so there are things you can add to your glyphosate, uh, reducing water, like there's a few different things, but again, I, in some cases it's easier also to find if you can find a different uh, source of water, uh, especially for some of these really sensitive ones. Um, quite often we talk about trying to fix it and there is options to fix it, but if you have an opportunity to find better water, that solves a lot of headaches and takes some of that variability out of it. So testing, maybe you have a different dugout, maybe, and maybe for glyphosate, you can find you have to drive a little farther, but for that one product, that's really key. And once you move into less sensitive products, you can go to something that's a little closer to home or something like that. But building a system where maybe you can get good quality water is, is key if you can find it. Yeah, that's, that's true. And, and, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll consult with individuals who have two or three well locations and they'll say, which is the water I should use. Now, remember, glyphosate is sensitive to hardness at the half liter per rate equivalent at about 350 parts per million total hardness. Um, if you have a higher rate, uh, and a lot of people are using higher rates because glyphosate has historically been quite cheap, uh, then you, obviously your sensitivity is a little bit less. Aside from water, if you've got water and you're worried about it, um, Definitely the testing, but ammonium sulfate is the adjuvant. I mean, that's what that's what works. It's 210024. That's pure ammonium sulfate. And a one to two percent by weight mixture usually solves most water quality issues for glyphosate. 
Um, you know, what some of my colleagues say, you know, why bother? Uh, the, the best adjuvant for a hard water is more glyphosate. Uh, because you can overcome with rate. It is, it is a concentration dependent thing. But again, it's cost, it's label, uh, it's those kinds of things. Okay, one more water quality question and um, maybe just related again to getting it tested. But uh, so not everyone uses uh, municipal well water. Uh, there's dugouts out there. So John asks, uh, sometimes we use nasty looking smelly dugout water, but it seems to work just fine. It's filtered. Uh, but is there anything else they should be concerned about? Typically, surface water is nodule water quality issue. Surface water is typically soft. Um, we, you know, it's these old aquifers that have notorious amounts of sodium and calcium and magnesium in them that are the issue. And they're regionally located. They're actually, the location is well known. And people that have hard water know, know all about it. Su surface water, you have to watch uh, particulates and there's going to be filtered out for the most part. But you have to watch turbidity. And especially after a rainfall event and then glyphosate and later in the season, maybe, uh, you know, Reglone are very, very sensitive to suspended clay. And then you might want to uh, use a flocculating agent. Uh, this is aluminum sulfate. It's a powder. It's applied to the, to the dugout about uh, a day or two be before. And it, uh, it actually settles out some of these suspended solids and clarifies the water. That's a good practice if, if you have turbidity issues. Okay, we have a, it doesn't have to be all about weeds. Um, we've got a quick question about nozzles for nutrient application. Tom? So the, the, the rise of the specialty nutrients has created some problems for the tank mixing world. That's one thing I want to just talk about. And it basically means you have to jar test using the temperature, using the water that you're, that you're going to use and using the mixing order you're going to use, the, the temperature of the water, everything has to be just so uh, because the compatibility, you just can't predict it with nutrients. You know, the some most nutrients are still taken up by roots. I'm not a fertility expert. I'm just parroting what I've heard them say. Most nutrients are still taken up by roots, and there's therefore streamer nozzles may still be the best way to do that. But some may be taken up by foliar uh, mechanisms, and they can in fact be be mixed in that case with some of your pesticides. That reminds me of something, Tom. We we talked about earlier is that this, this idea of tank mixing in uh, an insecticide uh, to get flea beetles right around the same time that you're trying to get weeds. The timing is probably perfect, but, but it's quite a bit different uh, in terms of your, your, your spray, you know, droplet size targeting. Can you talk about some of the risks when, when targeting two quite different scenarios, weeds yeah, versus insects? Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, uh, Ian, I'm going to leave the scouting to you. And I'm just going to go assuming you've got these things. But um, most of our post-emergent flea beetle sprays are insecticide group 3A. They're pyrethroids. Pyrethroids act as a stomach poison, which means they hit the foliage and then they're absorbed and the, the insects have to eat the targeted foliage and their contact. In other words, the droplet hits the insect, the insect dies. For both of those situations, you need small drops to work. The likelihood of a flea beetle ingesting the spot that the droplet hit 
is low and it gets higher and higher the smaller the drops are and the more drops there are and the same can be said for hitting that flea beetle itself so if you're doing a low drift air induction spray for drift control with your herbicide on a windy day and you think you're going to get flea beetles you might not ian do you want to jump in anything to add there yeah, so there's obviously challenges at rolling that in. There's efficiencies, but there's also challenges doing that. I think that the, the biggest, the key thing is noticing that there are difficulties and making sure we hit thresholds. I like the idea of spraying early for weeds. That's a really key point that I think we still seem to miss that really early window. And that's a key point. But if, if we are spraying for flea beetles, we're trying to throw that in. I don't want to throw that into the tank mix, right? We got to make sure we hit threshold on it and realize that there are differences. There might be actually be enough difference if we haven't quite hit threshold, but we want to spray for weeds or those that two applications might actually be more efficient. Obviously, there's cases where it's easy to do a two in one. We just have to realize that it's hard to optimize both. There will be some. So is that early weeds? And again, it depends on the weed pressure. If we have a lot of flea beetles, we've hit threshold easily, but there's some weeds. I don't mind the idea of still cleaning up those early weeds. Those are the most competitive ones, but realizing that we might want to optimize for one or the other. Um, that, that's just a key thing. It's not a two, it's not a complete win-win. We've got some questions about specific products. Any things to look out for when using an induction system, like a rate, like gives a Raven sidekick as the example here, but uh, who wants to start with that? Just, just any lookouts with an induction system. So I think the, the, the attendee means an injection system. The Raven sidekick is a pump that injects chemical in the undiluted form from a small reservoir on the sprayer directly into the spray line. So you can actually then just hold water in your tank and then just have the, the turbulence and the spray boom just before exiting the nozzle actually do the mixing. And that works quite well. That sidekick is a mature technology. Uh, it has uh, an excellent reputation in the market. It's offered by many uh, of the of the OEM as an OEM piece of equipment, uh, many of the manufacturers. I don't have any real uh, history with it uh, because in injection is still not done very widely. Uh, but I have certainly not been aware of any special concerns. The, the the issue, the main issue really for it is that it doesn't handle the, the dry formulations without creating a slurry and slurries need agitation. And so that remains an issue as, as dry products really are still quite prevalent uh, in our world. Ian, do you, do you have anything to add there? No, I don't have a lot of uh, experience with it. It, you know, anytime you can limit the, where the chemical are is in your sprayer, that seems like a great idea. But uh, yeah, no, uh, not something I've worked with. Well, so just I'll stick with you for this one last question, then, Ian. And um, and I know Tom, you can talk about this too. But to the, so this is about a John Deere stainless steel boom. Um, I'm assuming it's not just a John Deere issue, but uh, how can I? Uh, this is the question. How can I get the chemical out that gets caught on the lip on the end of the pipe? Ian, any The lip there? on the, on the well, end I of the pipe, like, like, yeah, like the, end, the, the end nozzle. The very end, yeah. So there's that little gap or a little extension of the pipe yeah, at the all, end. And that's classic when you see, especially group two injuries, you see the little trailing. You can tell when the boom section sections cut on and off and you'll see these kind of Vs in the field. Um, so I, I know HyPro has an end nozzle system that kind of deals with some of that. That's the fancy option. Uh, the other option, which my sprayer has, is cheap uh, ball valves at the end of each nozzle, at the end of each one. Uh, and I crack those every time. I have them on both ends. They're usually those, the nozzle, the boom is, has threads on the end. Screw on a cheap ball valve, flush it out, uh, 
pretty much that that solves uh, that issue for me. It's it's a fairly cheap and easy. You have to get out of the sprayer when you're rinsing. You have to go along, crack them all, and flip them all on and off. Uh, but it's a pretty easy way to sort that out. So that that solves most issues. The one thing I would note with that is if you do have products that are like tank mixes that are a little bit complicated, you've done a jar test, it's okay. You spray, you agitate. But if that sprayer sits, sometimes flushing those out in between after the sprayer sit, maybe not switching chemicals, but just making sure it's actually also nice to actually once in a while I crack one and just look in there. Is there any goo sitting in there? Is there anything I should be worried about as I come to rinsing or, you know, I got, I got rained out. The sprayer had a sit with an unfortunate tank mix a little bit. Uh, it's actually not a bad way to check those ahead of time. So you don't put whatever things have maybe settled out and then throw those through nozzles or have other issues, but ball valves are the cheapest and easiest way to go. And of course the, 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 the recirculating boom, is a, a winter project I mentioned that would actually solve the problem because you never have a dead end anymore and you can actually flush it with water without spraying. Oh, say if you had a checklist of things that you wanted to get retrofitted on a sprayer. Um, are, like are most of the, the supply companies, like the sprayer companies pretty good if you took it in there in the winter and said, hey, I want this, 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 and this added. Uh, can you take care of that for me? Is that, is that a pretty simple process? Right now, no. I mean, right now we're we're talking about uh, shop projects on the farm. Uh, there, you know, they're starting to retrofit recirculating booms. That there's kits available, but they're still DIY projects. Um, we're hopefully going to see uh, some more recirculating booms at the OEM level. But for now, it's still still home project. You can you can get you know if you have still have plastic booms, you can replace them with steel booms and those kinds of things uh, at the dealer. But for the most part, uh, there is a huge opportunity for improving your sprayer on a winter project. Okay, we're going to have to sign off. Uh, so we'll get you guys to to um, to do your last uh, last top threes. Ian, we'll go to you first. What's what are your final three points? Make sure your sprayer is clean. It's hard to fix that if it's not clean. So make sure it's clean between products, especially before uh, spraying Liberty. Uh, scout your fields. Nothing replaces checking them. What weeds are in your field? Anything new? Rate staging? Do I got to add a tank mix partner? These are all things we can correct today and tomorrow so we can spray the next day. So make sure we know what's in the field, how to fit, spray it, and then just double check that we're spraying on the label. Timing, rates, these are all good adjustments to make, but make sure we're on the label so we don't have problems when we go to sell that crop at the end of the season. Great, Ian. Tom. Yeah, I have three main points. Uh, the first one is to know the spray quality that you need for the, the herbicides and insecticides you're planning to spray and make sure you've got the nozzles that can do that and you know how to do it uh, with pressure if necessary. Uh, number two is uh, take the time to do some time accounting. Uh, measure the time it takes you to do certain tasks and imagine that they took less time. Um, that will define your priority list for your winter projects because there's lots of room for improvement. Remember, you don't have to be in a hurry to benefit from more productive spraying time. It, in a, in, it's just rare occasions it'll let you get the job done before the bad weather hits. And finally, uh, do consider getting an ultra coarse nozzle to get you out of a bind uh, with a field that must be sprayed and the winds are a little bit too high. You can spray it with an ultra coarse nozzle. You may lose some coverage, yes, but you will get the job done in an environmentally friendly way. Thank you to Tom Wolf with Agrometrics. You can find lots of Tom's sprayer tips at sprayers101.com. Thank you to my Canola Council of Canada colleague, Ian Epp. 
The Canola Council has lots on this topic, especially in the weed management section at canolaencyclopedia.ca. Also, look for the article Spraying Tips for Tough Conditions at canolawatch.org. Thank you to Karina Lepp and Leanne Campbell at Manitoba Canola Growers for organizing the webinar. You can watch a recording of the webinar with the slides at their website, canolagrowers.com. And finally, thanks to you, the listener. I'm Jay Wetter, and this has been a Canola Watch podcast.